to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be looking at uh, different angles of uh, this week's uh, midterm elections in the United States. Also going to be touching on how abortion rights uh, fared in the midterms and what it means for the movement for reproductive justice. Also going to be having a look at the uh, administration of Joe Biden halfway through his term. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off. Today, we are very happy to be joined by Natalia Marquez, writer and organizer from New York City. Natalia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Natalia, of course, midterms uh, have taken place uh, here in the U.S. Uh, I would say uh, highly anticipated uh, uh, elections coming at a pretty fraught time uh, politically, economically and socially in the United States. Uh, the Republicans were really pushing for um, a, a red wave. Uh, and I think that uh, a lot of people, uh, even uh, folks outside of uh, the two party uh, spectrum, may have uh, expected something similar, but that wasn't quite the case. Although we have seen uh, Republicans make some gains, I wouldn't exactly describe uh, what happened as a wave, although there are still some races like uh, Georgia and I believe in Arizona uh, still uh, up in the air. But uh, just sort of generally curious your uh, top line thoughts about uh, how we've seen the midterms play out so far here in the U.S. And uh, what do you think uh, motivated these results? Yeah, well, it is interesting right now. It looks like um, the House is leaning Republican and the Senate is slightly leaning Democrat at this point, but it's really a toss up. But um, I think a lot of people, you know, either on the right or the left were predicting, you know, a massive, um, you know, Republican wave into Congress. Um, That doesn't seem to be the case. And in many states, um, very prominent Republican candidates that the party and the base had really invested in have not won or not winning um, in many ballot measures that people, you know, are voting on things like abortion and slavery. Um, people are um, voting, you know, towards the left. So it it really is a little bit surprising, but it's, um, you know, a good kind of surprising. I think it shows that despite the fact that the Democratic um you know, leadership doesn't really have a very strong political program or really any political program for transformation in U.S. society. Um, Despite that fact, people don't necessarily buy um, what the Republicans are selling either. So I think um, I think that's important um, to note, you know, uh, in a lot of and, you know, every single abortion referendum where the right to abortion was put to a vote, even in, you know, deep red states, Abortion, you know, passed in every single abortion rights passed in every single one of those referendums. Um, And so, you know, left policies are indeed popular. Um, In many cases, you know, there were there were two cases that that I believe are notable um, where Democratic candidates abandoned the struggle for student loans, for example. So um, in the case of Cortez Masto um, and. Tim Ryan. Um, and those those Democratic candidates are actually losing in their respective states. So I think that, um, you know, it's, it's good news. It shows that people um, are, you know, 
do want these these changes and do want these transformational policies um, are not buying what the Republicans are selling. But in almost every single race that I'm seeing, it's extremely, extremely close. Like it's a it's a question of, you know, one to three percentage points in a lot of these major races. So I think it also really shows that the Democrats, though, you know, they're doing better than expected, um, you know, are not necessarily very popular. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. I don't think they're out of the woods with that at all. And and what it shows uh, to me, uh, uh, Natalia, because I I definitely think you're right. It shows how uh, the right wing program is actually not that popular or or certainly not as popular as uh, the Republicans would have uh, uh, people believe. And I think it also shows to your point about uh, the Democrats that, I mean, the American electorate, to me, seems like it's actually more progressive than uh, the two-party mainstream. You know what I mean? In terms of how uh, people are voting, and I think for me also, just in terms of uh, the the different struggles that we've been seeing uh, in the streets uh, here uh, recently in the U.S., whether it's over uh, abortion rights, the different labor struggles, uh, 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 the struggle against against racism and, and police terror and all these sorts of of things, and uh, I actually feel like it, it's kind of a, a, a representation, if you will, or kind of an example of uh, how things may be trending in the U.S. at this moment. It seems that we have an electorate that's pretty aware of its interest, and uh, a, a mainstream electoral apparatus that's under the control of these two ruling class parties, Democrats and Republicans, that simply are not uh, 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 responding to that. You know what I mean? And so I'm wondering how you see that aspect of things uh, playing out, Natalia. And just wh- wh- where do you think uh, political consciousness amongst the American people uh, uh, stands uh, at this moment? I mean, that's an extremely broad question. But uh, just sort of wondering, perhaps more precisely, how you see that consciousness being played out uh, uh, in the midterms in terms of what we've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I think that because we're in a two-party system where both parties are essentially beholden to, you know, a very similar set, if not the same set of ruling class donors, um, there's really a limit in how transformational um, towards the left the Democrats can be. The Republicans, of course, have, you know, they have no qualms about leaning extremely to the right um, and continuing to do so. But the Democrats do have major issues in supporting extremely popular, but maybe slightly radical um, policies, radical in the context of the United States. You know, we're talking about student loans, um, universal health care, abortion rights, legalizing marijuana, things that are extremely, um, extremely popular throughout the country that Democrats have not necessarily been um, willing to to stand on. And so, you know, the fact that it's so close when you have a party that is denying the results of the 2020 elections that wants to suppress um, perhaps even the vast majority of votes in the United States, wants to take away health care, wants to take away union organizing rights, abortion rights, you name it. You have a party that's so extreme and then you have another party. And somehow they're extremely close, right? Like, I think you you said it well, like the right-wing program, the Republican Party program is not a popular program. And yet 
the the fact that you know the house seems to lean republican the senate is a toss-up all these races are extremely close um is is it's, it's significant and it shows that um the democrats have really not offered a very strong alternative um and you know a lot of these issues being on the ballot i think that it's important to take note of that as well um, again, abortion rights passed in every single state where they were up for um, voting. Um, marijuana legalization passed in several states, um, in you know Montana notably, um, and um, you know voting rights passed in several states. Although that also is somewhat of a toss-up, but you know a lot of these issues for the first time are you know, on the ballot. Abortion, you know, was never necessarily up for a popular vote before Kansas. And yet, you know, despite a recount, despite a forced recount, abortion rights passed in Kansas. So I think it, it shows that there there is a lot that the American people are ready for that the Democrats are not necessarily fighting for. Um, and, you know, like, like I've said before, um, a lot of what, you know, very prominent Democrats, including the president, are running on is you know, the reality of the status quo, it's not so bad. Like like Joe Biden saying, um, you know, our inflation is actually better than, than many other countries. You know, that doesn't speak at all to the struggles that the American people are dealing with, the, um, you know, the, the fuel prices, the groceries, the, you know, the, the economic downturn that we're all experiencing. And I think that, um, you know, we have, we have more and more. We have progressive Democrats like Summer Lee, um, winning um, in Pennsylvania, I believe, and, and we have this progressive wave as well. But, um, you know, again, I'll say it again, we, we do need an independent program that's independent of the Democratic Party because there's so much that they're not willing to act on and so much that's extremely dire and pressing and that the American people need. Definitely. And, you know, like a lot of people, um, Natalia, I mean, I've, you know, been following uh, uh, these races, like uh, the fact that, you know, uh, John Fetterman, the Democrat, seems like he'll just squeeze by uh, Mehmet Oz, a TV doctor, and uh, how it looks like there may need to be a runoff in Georgia between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, of all people. And I mean, I've been I've just been kind of wrecking my brain trying to figure out, you know, how is it that these races can be so tight. Like, how is it that Amendment Oz or Herschel Walker can even be competitive, uh, uh, let alone uh, be real contenders um, for these uh, uh, positions? You know what I mean? And so I'm wondering, what do you think? What do you think that reflects about our uh, political moment? Is it related to these issues of uh, the impotency of the Democratic program or uh, uh, just sort of the way that uh, the Trumpist wing of the Republicans are sort of operating in this moment? in this way that it seems like they'll snatch up just about any uh, reactionary celebrity or, or how do you see that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Herschel Walker is, you know, just to give some background, I'm sure listeners know he um, is running against Raphael Warnock in Georgia. His whole campaign is around this issue of family values, quote unquote. He opposes abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. And two women have come forward and said that he paid for their abortions. Um, so this, it's it's a crazy, crazy uh, scandal. It's a crazy situation. Um, and I think it, it, it really does speak to 
the fact that the Republicans are willing to do it all, right? They're willing to do anything to win. They, these are, you know, random celebrities that they've snatched up. They're willing to get the candidates with name recognition. They're willing to, um, I, I, you know, I suppose appeal to voters' base instincts, you know, the worst, um, the worst parts of humanity where, you know, you have these, um, these very right-wing beliefs, these very anti-LGBT, anti-women, um, you know, conservative beliefs that are entrenched in, in the population of this country and, you know, quite frankly, any other country. Um, and, and Republicans are willing to appeal to that conservatism. They're willing to appeal to the sense of alienation that people have, the sense of, um, you know, there's no way to make it in this economy, the sense that things are changing, you know, for the worse. Um, and they're willing to appeal to these feelings in order to win. Um, they're willing to adopt essentially any ideology, any crazy, um, any of the most crazy conservative stances in order to um, get mass appeal for, you know, the, the conservative um, economic policies that their donors want, right? Um, the Democrats are not willing to do the opposite, you know, in the direction of the left. They're not willing to um, you know, fight for all of the policies that are the most popular, um, you know, because of this, of this fear of being too radical, of, this, of the fact that, you know, both parties exist for the same ruling class, right? The same donors support, um, the, the donors, you know, support both parties. Um, many of these politicians are actually, you know, friends um, of each other, right? Um, you know, many of these, these ruling class figures are actually, you know, run in the same social circle, circles. I will bring up that, um, you know, Tucker Carlson, um, famous Republican pundit, actually um, asked um, Hunter Biden for a letter of recommendation for his son to get into Georgetown. And his son did get in. So um, these, these pundits and these politicians um, and these wealthy families, they act as if they're enemies, but um, in reality, they're not. They're part of the same ruling class. Um, and I think that, you know, there are some exceptions, right? There are, um, there are, there is this progressive wave of Democrats that are willing to do some things that were considered too quote unquote radical, right? Fight for universal health care, um, fight for abortion rights, marijuana legalization, um, fight for a minimum wage. Um, you know, you, you have the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Um, but I think what that speaks to is how is what the people really want. You know, people want um, a good life. People want um, to be able to pay for groceries. People want good schools for their kids. They want safety, right? Um, you know, th those, those are the central popular bread and butter issues that many Democrats are, are not willing to run on. And you have, you know, I do want to also bring up the, the secretaries of state, the Republican, um, you know, Trump-supporting secretaries of state, that um, ran for, you know, the highest office overseeing elections in their states, despite the fact that they, you know, denied the results of the 2020 elections. And, and quite a few of them have won or seem to be, win will it, seem to be winning, um, which, you know, poses the threat of a constitutional crisis in 2024 if these secretaries of state refuse to certify the results of the 2024 elections, if they lean Democrat um, and, you know, the fact that any of them won, um, despite their ridiculous beliefs, is, is really a testament to, I think, less the strength of the Republican Party and more 
of the weakness of a real, um, you know, left alternative. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Natalia, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, how abortion rights fared in this year's midterm elections. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Hannah Dickinson, professor and organizer with the Geneva Women's Assembly in Geneva, New York, and the managing editor of Breaking the Chains magazine. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to be here. Absolutely. And Hannah, of course, uh, this week saw the midterm elections in the United States in uh, a a time uh, uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, imperiling uh, uh, the right to abortion access for women in this country. And uh, there were at least uh, five abortion related ballot measures that uh, were at stake in states like Vermont, California, Michigan, Kentucky and Montana. And uh, in some cases, I think we saw uh, uh, reproductive rights actually protected uh, as a result of the votes. And so I'm just sort of wondering, you know, how did these results play out and what do you think it means in terms of the ongoing fight uh, for abortion rights here in the U.S.? I think the um, results of these referendums um, are telling and, and also, honestly, they confirm what we already know, which is that abortion is popular in the United States. Um, so, you know, we can get into the individual states here in a second. The um, ballot initiatives looked different in each of the five states you listed. But um, I think we can say um, at this point that in all five cases, abortion rights were defended by the voters and by the organizers who really, really got out the vote um, on these referendum measures. And, you know, I think a couple things are really important um, to note about uh, what these the results um, on these abortion referendums might tell us in addition to the fact that abortion is popular. Um, you know, I think the second point that's really, really important to underline is it makes so clear when a state like Kentucky, um, state like Montana, even a state like Michigan, right, comes out and says, no, we, we support abortion rights, that the stands in such stark contrast to the decision made by the elite, undemocratic Supreme Court um, in the Dobbs decision. Uh, You know, we saw it then. It's true today. That was a deeply unpopular minoritarian decision, um, right, forced onto uh, the people of the United States against our will. Um, and, And these referendums say, Actually, when you put decision-making power into the hands of the people, when you don't just ask them to vote for someone because they promise to defend your rights, when you actually get to go to the ballot box and vote to defend your own rights, people do it, and people do it in large numbers, and they do it to reject 
a deeply unpopular far-right agenda that includes uh, the rollback of abortion rights, um, but also so many other democratic rights that I think people are prepared to stand up for. But but that doesn't mean they want to stand up for, you know, elite politicians. Yeah, definitely. And I was hoping we could get into uh, how some of these different ballot measures looked uh, in these states, because, as you say, you know, they aren't necessarily identical. Yeah, let's do it. Um, You know, I think one that's really, really important to look at um, is Kentucky. So uh, Kentucky had already banned abortion through a trigger ban um, that they passed in 2019. So, you know, immediately after the overturn of Roe, people in Kentucky lost their access to abortion. Now, the um, ACLU will argue in court on November 15th um, that actually Kentucky's constitution protects abortion. So the, uh, you know, really right-wing measure that um, was on the ballot in Kentucky would uh, put in would have put into their constitution a ban on abortion, right? So this um, ACLU suit and others wouldn't have been able to go forward. So you know what's happened now in Kentucky is the voters have said quite decisively um, that they right reject this far right attack on abortion rights. And it's it's opened the door for the possibility um, that legal abortion will be reintroduced um, in Kentucky, which is important for the reproductive freedoms um, for Kentuckians. But it's also important to um, folks living in the states surrounding Kentucky um, that are also struggling to access abortion. I want to say just one other thing about Kentucky um, that I think in some sense is true of all of these referendums, but it's really quite stark um, when we look at the case of Kentucky. Uh, Rand Paul, uh, you know, won quite decisively um, at least 10-point margin. Um, They called it real early uh, in Kentucky at the same time that um, the state referendum on abortion was rejected um, by, you know, we'll see what the final results results are. But, you know, I, it could be as many as 10 points. Um, and I think that tells us something, right? I mean, that tells us that, first of all, the Democratic strategy of ignoring red states um, is a failing strategy, that there are people in those states who, A, deserve um, representation that stands up for them and their rights, uh, but also um, that abortion is more popular than the Democrats. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the lessons out of Kentucky um, are, are one that's especially important, um, but happy to talk uh, Michigan or California or Vermont, Montana. They're, they're all actually really, really good news for the movement. Yeah. um, Let's touch on uh, Michigan, if we can. Yeah, of course. So the struggle for abortion rights in Michigan has been ongoing and um, and really quite complicated, frankly, uh, since the overturn of Roe. The battle there has really centered on whether a 1931 abortion ban that's disgusting uh, can be enforced. So, you know, I picture this. You have a state where... um, Again, abortion is quite popular. Uh, People have um, enjoyed the right to abortion uh, for many, many decades. We'll put it that way. Um, And when Roe gets overturned, the far right in Michigan 
um, insists that this 1931 abortion ban is now the law of the land. So, you know, over the summer and into the fall, uh, people in Michigan saw a real um, sort of volleying about their rights. Abortion clinics were open one day, closed the next. Appointments were canceled, not just for people in Michigan, but people traveling hundreds of miles um, to come to Michigan for an abortion. And so coming into this referendum, uh, there had been a stay um, on that 1931 uh, ban. Uh, Basically, uh, the ruling had been, this is this is ancient law. Let's see what the people have to say. And so the stakes were high in Michigan. And um, what reproductive rights organizers were trying to do there is put a, a constitutional amendment into the Michigan Constitution that would right, make sure this 1931 ban, um, you know, could never go into effect and would in the Constitution codify protections for abortion in Michigan. And um, activists have been working um, tirelessly uh, for months and months and months um, to ensure that um, reproductive freedoms are secured in Michigan. Um, And and they won. And I think, you know, one thing I just want to say about Michigan um, is, first of all, I mean, again, I think this is true um, in different ways for all of these ballot referendums, but but young people really showed up. Um, you know, we saw photos of people, uh, students at the uh, at Michigan State University waiting three hours to vote. Um, I mean, so I think that tells us, right, again, abortion is popular. Abortion is popular with young people. And the um, on the street, on the ground, door to door, campus to campus organizing, right, did important work uh, to help people in Michigan see what concretely they could really do um, to protect their reproductive freedoms. I think the other important thing to say about Michigan is um, Democrats won quite big there. I mean, uh, Whitmer gets reelected and they've they have a Democratic House, I think, for the first time um, since the 80s. And I I just want to, you know, feels important to say uh, today and and to your listeners, uh, the mainstream media is going to try to spin this um, to say uh, the Michigan win is um, a win because uh, Democrats stood up for abortion. And, And that's not what happened. Right. People came out to vote because they were voting on this referendum because they had a chance to say, um, right, decisively and democratically, I want abortion rights. Um, and I, I think that the efforts on the Democrats, and that's not just in Michigan, you know, it's um, nationwide to, to, to sort of now retroactively spin this and say, uh, we're so great because we defend abortion rights. It's a lie, right? I, the Democrats have done nothing um, at the federal level to defend abortion rights, despite having the majority. And um, and and they took a real risk with our rights, right, coming into these midterms, um, having done nothing. So it's one thing to give a you know series of stump speeches where you talk about how important abortion is and how evil the other guys are for um, their far right anti-abortion views. I, that's sure, do that, but. But you've got to back it up with some action. And 
And honestly, in Michigan, they actually got taken by the voters, right? They're actually the ones who have now uh, secured abortion rights um, for themselves and for their neighbors in Michigan. Definitely. And, you know, I appreciate you raising this 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 issue of uh, Democrats are potentially taking credit for um, these results, because, as you point out, I mean, it was uh, uh, the young people and uh, people who decided that they wanted to fight for these rights that that I think uh, really um, uh, uh, are the ones that uh, we, we look to in terms of uh, how this even played out. And particularly because when we look at how the Democrats have steadfastly refused used to codify a uh, uh, Roe v. Wade or to really fight for uh, abortion rights in the way that they claim to. I mean, it, it's true with Barack Obama. It's true with Joe Biden. We always hear these um, uh, uh, promises and very nice sounding things about uh, uh, enshrining abortion rights, yet somehow it never happens with the Democrats, even when they have the power to do so. And then when it comes uh, uh, election time, somehow it's up to all of us to pull their biscuits out of the fire uh, to protect this right that the Democrats themselves never fought for. And so another thing that I think it sort of shows, uh, uh, Hannah, is that not only that uh, uh, abortion rights are popular, as you note, but that there is a desire to fight back against this far right campaign uh, against a democratic rights, it, which use which uses uh, abortion rights kind of as it's uh, a, a flagship sort of issue, you know. So you know, and and I maintain that the overturning of Roe v. Wade was sort of the, the switch that needed to get flipped so that the right could go after uh, some of these other uh, fundamental rights like uh, voting and, and things like that. But considering the intensity of the reactionary uh, far-right movement here in the U.S. and the complete inaction and cowardice of the center-right uh, uh, Democrat Party, it seems to me, Hannah, that uh, the hope for uh, abortion rights in the United States and the hope for a lot of our basic democratic rights that are under attack right now remains uh, uh, in the streets. It remains in the movement. Matter of fact, I remember that in some of those uh, mass demonstrations following the overturning of um, uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, there was this one demonstration— I remember uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke was well, excuse me, Robert O'Rourke. Well, you know, I try not to acknowledge that little uh, fake nickname he has, but um, and people were literally chanting about how like they don't believe in this lie of vote blue no matter who, and that they were um, uh, basically willing to fight where the Democrats were unwilling. And so it seems that the prospects for an independent movement uh, fighting for abortion rights and for these democratic rights seems to really be key here in terms of uh, really pressing this. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean. It is the answer. The far right is coming for all of our rights. Um, and and I, I just want to take a quick second to say, you know, today the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments on the Indian Child Welfare Act, which is, I think, another really, really important right uh, or le- really important legislation won by a people's struggle, right, um, Native nations and activists standing up against the kidnapping by the state of um, Native children, you know, before the Indian Child Welfare Act gets passed, um, which is, I want to be clear, not always successful, right? But before it was passed, at least a third of Native children were being stolen um, from their communities. So here today, in front of the Supreme Court, we um, are, right, 
oral arguments are going on on another case that is fundamentally about reproductive justice, about Native women's rights to their bodily autonomy, and fundamentally about democratic rights um, if the uh, Supreme Court overrules or overturns ICWA, right? Suddenly, Native sovereignty is on the table, right, as a as a as a no longer protected federal right. I mean, so that you're right. Like the stakes could not be higher, and the right is not stopping. Um, they are coming hard for our democratic rights, and the Democratic Party is doing virtually nothing to stop them. And so, you know, when I think about um, what lessons we might take from these referendums, um, it, it is precisely the lesson that. First, people want to fight. Second, people want to join a fighting movement. And and third, it is only, right, by fighting for our rights and taking them, um, just like, you know, the way abortion rights were won in the first place, that we really um, have any guarantee at all of any rights here um, in the United States. And so, yeah, I think it's crucial that we don't let the Democrats um, spin this narrative as, you know, these referendum results pointing to the popularity of Democrats. That's not what they point to, right? The Democrats have done nothing to help us. The Republicans are fighting against us. It, it, right, we have to save ourselves. Um, and, and that's what people in these five states did. Organizers got out and they talked about the issues that matter to people. They talked about the rights that are under attack or um, had already been lost by people in Kentucky and Montana and Michigan. And, um, and, and, you know, I'll just say one other quick thing, like the Democrats, right. They, they underestimate the people over and over and over again. Um, and the mainstream media, right. Um, hops right alongside them that suddenly we were having conversations leading up to the midterms about whether voters were going to care more about abor abortion or care more about the economy. I mean, that's just ludicrous. I, we're not stupid, right? We understand that abortion and economics are linked issues that if you don't have the money to have a family, you shouldn't be forced to by the state. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve is making plans to slash jobs rather than slashing corporate profits, right? Like this is the situation we're in. Uh, everyday people, like we're not dumb, right? We understand that the stakes are high. The question is, right? How do we fight for them? It is clear, right? The way to fight for them is not to elect Democrats who um, will now, I mean, we'll see how the results of the, you know, Senate and House elections turn out and what those majorities look like. But, you know, it's going to be close. And, and so we're going to hear for another two years, right? Like Democrats hands are tied. There's nothing they can do that, that is just false, right? <laughs> they could get rid of the filibuster and pass, right? abortion rights right now. Um, but but they won't and they haven't. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman 
And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we are grading U.S. President Joe Biden in the performance of his administration halfway through his term. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine and author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including The Russians Are Coming, again, with John Marciano and Obama's Unending Wars. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Jeremy, of course, we've had the uh, midterms here in the U.S. and uh, uh, with the Republicans, I think, uh, pushing for uh, a red wave uh, that seems to have played out about as well as the Democrats, a blue wave of uh, a couple of years ago. But uh, you all at uh, Covert Action magazine have uh, uh, graded uh, Joe Biden uh, halfway into his first term. And uh, you actually published a piece about this on the Covert Action. Uh, a website, and uh, you actually gave Joe Biden uh, an F for uh, performance as his midterm grade. And so I just wanted to get into uh, uh, why uh, he got this uh, designation and why you think that uh, Biden uh, seems to be failing so miserably as president here. Well, I think the primary reason is that he's uh, uh, threatening a major uh, conflagration with both Russia and China, two nuclear-armed powers, uh, and seems to be uh, going out of his way to provoke World War III. Uh, so, I mean, even by the standard of the Democratic Party, which we shouldn't forget, that's the party uh, that orchestrated wars like Vietnam uh, and has, you know, a terrible record, uh, you know, going back to presidents like Woodrow Wilson, uh, who involved the U.S. in World War One. But Biden seems to be almost even worse than his predecessors. Uh, if we think about the dangers we're now facing, you know, and many commentators are warning that we're at the most dangerous moment uh, in recent history uh, since at least the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and they're comparing it to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there doesn't seem really to be any basis for at all, any rational basis for the U.S. provoking conflicts with either China or Russia. Uh, both uh, governments have voiced over and over again their desire to cooperate with the U.S. As Xi Jinping was promoting for years a win-win strategy where the U.S. and, and China work together to advance you know, mutual interests. Uh, and, and Vladimir Putin in the past had been very open to uh, working with the U.S. As, early, you know, as the Obama administration at one point was promoting a reset policy to ameliorate relations, but you know, Biden has just gone out of his way, and some of his, his predecessors too, but he's taken it to the next level with the war in Ukraine, the billions of dollars that have been poured into Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, I, I think this, we're at a very dangerous moment in history, and this is a leader who has failed the American public. I mean, his job as commander-in-chief is to protect national security, and instead he's uh, carrying out recklessly provocative policies that are threatening a world war or a nuclear war. Yeah, and on that note, uh, in your piece, you you talk about Joe Biden's personal history in foreign policy, even before his election, uh, led a good bit uh, to be desired. And I was hoping you could get more deeper into that and how you see uh, uh, Biden's personal track record in foreign policy um, impacting uh, the way he uh, sort of grapples with that issue now as president. 
Well, I think Biden was, yeah, he started when he first campaigned, he was kind of riding the wave of the Vietnam anti-war movement. Actually, he himself had stood outside that movement. That was the dominant movement of young people in the 60s. And he was a young person in the 60s, relatively young. Most of his peers were protesting the war, which was an abomination in, in Vietnam. But he was he was kind of standoffish and he even mocked the protesters when he was a law student at uh, Syracuse University. But, uh, you know, he kind of rode the wave you know, into office by packaging himself as an anti-Vietnam War candidate in the early 70s in Delaware when he first made it into the Senate. But then he pretty quickly morphed into a neoconservative who was supporting, like in the Reagan years, he was supporting uh, wars like Grenada and bombing of Libya. Then he was a, a staunch champion of the war in the Balkans in the 90s and helped secure Senate support for the war in Iraq in 2003. So he had a hawkish record, and he was mentored in the Senate by Avril Harriman, who's considered the father of the Cold War. Uh, who is a, a prominent uh, State Department official, and at one point the U.S. ambassador to Russia, uh, who uh, was from a very, very wealthy family. In fact, his father was one of the robber barons, and he hated you know the Soviet Union, the Soviet system, because they, you know he had a business holding in Eastern Europe, and they nationalized some of his holdings. He had a personal vendetta against the Soviets, so he was a hardline Cold Warrior who supported the Vietnam War. Uh, in the State Department, that was one of Biden's political mentors. So maybe it's not that surprising that you know Biden would, would promote Cold War Part Two, uh, given his uh, background as a Cold Warrior and uh, somebody who's mentored by Avril Harriman. Uh, but this Cold War, yeah, maybe even more dangerous than, than the last Cold War. And you know, with Ukraine, Biden has a history there in Ukraine. He was Obama's point man for Ukraine after the Maidan coup of 2014. And uh, he actually you know, blackmailed the uh, government to fire a prosecutor uh, who was going after uh, you know, Burisma, the company of his son. And uh, you know, he was a super hawk from the beginning on Ukraine you know, as far as trying to supply them with heavy-duty military equipment uh, when they attacked eastern, you know, the eastern provinces when they pushed for autonomy. So he'd been very hawkish. Uh, you know, vice president on Ukraine. He's continued as president, pushing for these huge billion-dollar arms packages and openly calling for regime change in Russia. Yeah, and that's actually the next point I wanted to touch on, because you make an interesting point in your piece about um, how Biden really made the Ukraine war his own, and part and parcel of that, the speech that he gave back in uh, uh, March, uh, where, you know, he straight up said that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. That is an open call for regime change. And I mean, it's just like how we've heard from uh, openly a couple of different U.S. officials about how, you know, the Ukraine war is about, quote unquote, uh, weakening Russia. Now, not about uh, saving the Ukrainian people or any of these uh, uh, sorts of things. And so how do you see Biden as sort of, you know, taking ownership of uh, the war uh, uh, in Ukraine uh, in a way that uh, we uh, may have not necessarily seen uh, in the past? Yeah, I mean, this is really becoming more and more of an American war. Uh, there's evidence of Americans uh, involved in the war directly, uh, that they're in Ukraine, you know, training Ukrainian army operatives, helping with weapons inspections and uh, training how to use weapon systems. And then there are, you know, uh, mercenaries who may have some loose affiliation with intelligence agencies. Uh, and then there are special forces are in Poland uh, training Ukrainian uh, special forces. So, 
uh, it's, you know, and then there's a lot of intelligence collaboration and the Ukrainian secret service apparently, uh, is, you know, has very close collaboration with the CIA. So yeah, we're seeing very direct involvement, certainly from a Russian point of view, they see American as directly involved in the war and they feel, I think the Russians feel like they're under attack. And yeah, again, you know, as you pointed out, Biden openly called for regime change in Russia and, you know, it seemed that the Ukrainian people are just pawns in this larger geopolitical uh, struggle. Uh, and the human costs of this policy are incalculable for the Ukrainian people. And, and the you know, threat uh, to the world security environment is just uh, terrible uh, at this time. And uh, this just really threatens to escalate into a world war, if not, you know, a potentially nuclear war. And Biden, you know, nuclear posture of view, you know, we've seen the release in recent weeks of uh, you know, administration policy on nuclear weapons, and they're kind of doubling down on a huge nuclear arms buildup. Uh, and there's even talk of a nuclear first strike. And Biden's appointment to head Stratcom, which oversees the country's nuclear arsenal, you know, said we need a flexible policy and basically said his job is to train there are 100,000 people, I think, who work under him. And he says to train them to get ready to deploy nuclear weapons. So we're in a very dangerous situation, and it's entirely manufactured. This could have been uh, easily prevented with uh, reasonable leadership. And unfortunately, we have these characters out of the Dr. Strangelove movie uh, in government. And I mean, Biden seemed like a genial man, but he's really a, a neoconservative war hawk. And he has that track record. Yes, he surveyed his career. He has a history of supporting wars uh, throughout his career. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, taking sort of another look at uh, the war in Ukraine and, and how, uh, uh, you know, uh, Washington sort of prepared for it. I mean, a part of that was the uh, Biden administration establishing this uh, permanent military base uh, in Poland, of course, under a right wing government um, that gets lots and lots of uh, U.S. Uh, uh, weaponry. And interestingly, um, uh, Biden appointed one uh, Mark Brzezinski as the ambassador ambassador to Poland. And, and Mark is the uh, son of none other than uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, you know, best known for, you know, the book, The Grand, the Grand Chessboard, and really sort of laying out the long term, uh, uh, far reaching um, demands and desires and plans of a U.S. imperialism. But this is his son uh, who has been appointed the ambassador, sort of, you know, a notoriously sort of a, a Russophobic family. And, and it, it, it feels like a kind of sort of development of like a weird Russophobic front because, you know, out and out Russophobia is a, such a big piece of this, something that's really been built up in the popular consciousness of the American people for some time. And so when the U.S. takes this orientation towards the Russian government, it's uh, not considered uh, offensive uh, by the American people. And I feel like we could throw in um, Biden's relationship with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky in this kind of uh, uh, category as well, Jeremy. Me in terms of these uh, relationships, these dynamics that are part and parcel of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine that uh, have already had, uh, I think, destructive, very destructive consequences and tend to have uh, even uh, more far reaching consequences if things continue here. And so, Jeremy, what do you make of, uh, uh, you know, the Biden administration's relationship with people like Mark Brzezinski and uh, uh, the Zelensky government, which, you know, it, 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 the Ukraine had to have 
a sufficiently, um, uh, uh, I guess, a sycophantic, if you will, or at least sympathetic a government in Kiev uh, to basically for Washington to put a battery in their back uh, around this in order to, you know, uh, get at their ultimate goal, which, of course, was Russia. But I mean, how do you see these kinds of relationships as necessary to this broader peace? Well, yeah, I think they're they're very telling. I mean, Brzezinski has been a key architect of U.S. Uh, imperialism for many years you know, until his death. As big new Brzezinski, and as you point out, it's an extremely Russophobic family going back to their, uh, Mark. You know, Mark is the ambassador to Poland now, and Poland's playing a key role in the Ukraine war as a way station for the weapon supplies. Um, and his grandfather and his big new's father, Tadeusz fought in the Soviet-Polish War of 1920, uh, and had been a diplomat, a uh, Polish diplomat, who, you know, hated the Soviets with every fiber of his bones and kind of instilled his son, uh, and his, I guess his son installed his son with his hatred of Russia and this desire to basically uh, weaken Russia and keep Russia, you know, maybe uh, isolated a vassal state of the West. And that seems to be the grand design uh, that's being uh, promoted here. And Zelensky is the kind of tool uh, to achieve that uh, you know, in Ukraine by waging this war whose purpose is to kind of bleed the Russians and uh, you know, foment their you know, quagmire for them, an Afghan-type quagmire. But it was Big New who developed a strategy in Afghanistan to bleed the Russians, uh, you know, facilitate the Russians' Vietnam and Afghanistan to weaken and undermine the Soviet empire, and they're pursuing the same blueprint today. And yeah, the media image of Zelensky uh, is just pure you know, fantasy. I mean, if you look into that regime, they, Zelensky banned 11 opposition parties. Uh, they're openly carrying out terrorist uh, attacks against political rivals and those who are being pro-Russian. This is extended into Russia itself. Where uh, Ukraine, I think, all but admitted to the car bombing attack on this uh, young journalist who was the daughter of a prominent Russian intellectual, uh, Mr. Dina. And it was reported in the New York Times that this was not an isolated incident, that these commando units were carrying out terrorist attacks, uh, car bombs, targeting Russian officials uh, um, behind, even within Russia. So, uh, you know, this is a government basically promoting terrorism. Uh, and banning the opposition and a gulag full of, of prisoners, and we're led to believe that this is some kind of heroic uh, Democrat. And of course, there's a pattern. You know, there's a, such a double standard. You know, Biden is promoting this rhetoric that you know, the new Cold War, we need to stand for democracy against the autocracy of Russia and China, and yet the his administration is supporting uh, brutal autocratic governments like Ukraine. You can move to the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia. You can move to Africa, like Uganda. A leading recipient of U.S. aid in Africa is Uganda, under which has been ruled by Yoweri Museveni since 1980. And Museveni has been compared to Idi Amin and has killed who knows how many of his opponents and invaded numerous countries, you know, Congo, Sudan, and committed so many atrocities, as well as in northern Uganda. So uh, it's just uh, such a hypocrisy. You know, even if you look in Asia, uh, I mean, in India, the, the U.S. claimed they're standing for democracy against Chinese autocracy, and China you know, has human rights abuse against the Uyghur. We don't hear anything about India. The Biden administration is pledging more and more weapons and you know, defense relations with India under Narendra Modi. And there are articles uh, in Western journals about how Modi is increasingly autocratic, 
how he represses the Muslim population. He's a Hindu nationalist. There's an awful situation in Kashmir and atrocities by India. Uh, but we, we only hear about the Uyghur and, and China. You know, it's all it's all politicized. And it's a blatant double standard on human rights, and you see it with Ukraine and Russia and, and India and China and other places. Definitely. And, you know, just in thinking, just in speaking about Zelensky, and maybe, you know, this is an aside, but, you know, I continue to be struck by the celebritization of Volodymyr Zelensky in the U.S. and the West. I mean, I was just uh, looking at uh, a piece earlier about how actor Sean Penn actually hand delivered one of his Oscars to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine. And so just just the level of prominence that Zelensky has uh, been afforded as the head of another country, I think is uh, frankly unprecedented. I think it's really only matched by the level of demonization um, that the heads of uh, the governments that U.S. considers em- en- enemies could uh, uh, really match that. But to me, Jeremy, it, it, it sort of goes back to this idea that's really been promoted as um, uh, uh, Ukraine as a democracy that's being invaded uh, by the big, bad uh, uh, Russian uh, expansionist government, you know what I mean? But, you know, the American people, at least, I think still don't quite grasp that, uh, you know, the question of democracy in Ukraine is pretty moot at this point following the U.S. back to Maidan coup of uh, 2014, when uh, it was clear that uh, Washington wanted someone uh, who was more sympathetic to them and less sympathetic to Moscow in power. And so I feel like in so many ways, what we're seeing in Ukraine right now and how it's been portrayed to us and the world is, you know, the consequence of processes that have been uh, uh, ongoing for years and really going, you know, way further back than 2014. Yeah, I think you make uh, many excellent points there. And yeah, Ukraine had a democracy until 2014. You know, Viktor Yanukovych was a pro-Russian leader and he was democratically elected and they had those protests, but they didn't have enough signatures for his impeachment. So they had to overthrow him through violence and that's what ushered in the whole conflict uh, in Ukraine. And you know, as far as Zelensky, yeah, it's it's sad that people would buy into this image because all you have to do, I mean, if you scrutinize his regime just a little bit, uh, you find some really ugly things that I pointed out. And he's also, you know, passed laws to erode labor rights in the country. Uh, and he's, you know, favoring foreign corporations. Uh, so he's really like a, a ruler who's selling out his own people in so many different ways, uh, including sh- setting them up to be slaughtered by the Russians because he refuses to negotiate a settlement. Uh, and there were terms in place under the Minsk Accords that could end the conflict, I think, quite quickly, but he refuses, uh, perhaps guided by the United States. So, yeah, it's really a, a kind of perverse uh, world that, or upside down world we live in where this guy is some kind of hero and Hollywood celebrities are going to uh, you know, kiss his feet. And this is a guy who's brought ruin to his own people and is a really a ruthless and cruel leader and who was empowered in, in a coup that, that overthrew democracy in that country. And somehow people believe that, that, that somehow he's leading a struggle for democracy. It's, it's right out of George Orwell's uh, 1984. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. but move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
So by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also check out our shows on sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash B-A-M necessary. And today, just like every day, we are streaming live on rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And at the top of the hour today, it's being reported that the Georgia Senate race will, in fact, go to a runoff because of how close it was. So on December 6th will be the runoff between a Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and his challenger from the Republicans, Herschel Walker. Jesus Christ, this country. Um, another one of them was able to get past the uh, 50% threshold to win the race outright uh, uh, during the elections last night. And uh, so, as I say, the runoff will be happening early next month. Also in midterm news, uh, uh, Democratic Governor uh, Kathy Holchel has uh, won the election in New York on Tuesday, uh, which uh, means that she will be uh, the first woman uh, to uh, hold the office of governor of New York State, defeating uh, Republican Representative Lee Zeldin. Be that as it may, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Radhika Desai, a professor at the University of Manitoba and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dr. Desai, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Sean. Wonderful to be with you. Absolutely. And it's great to have you on, Doctor. And, you know, I was looking at some uh, of the exit polls following from uh, the U.S. midterms, and I think uh, uh, some of what we have seen so far is maybe not that surprising, but I do think it's indicative of uh, sort of the political moment that we're in in the United States with all of its uh, different dynamics and issues. And I'm going to read here directly from a piece that was published in Politico uh, entitled Exit Polls Show Voters Divided by Biden, Trump and Abortion. And it says, quote, in the national uh, national election pool exit poll conducted by Edison Research, roughly three in four voters describe the conditions of the U.S. economy as either poor or not so good. 
And 73% said they were dissatisfied or angry about the way things are going in the country today. While more voters said inflation was the most important issue to them, it only barely topped abortion, 31% to 27%. In Pennsylvania, where Democrat John Fetterman flipped a GOP-held Senate seat to fuel his party's hopes of keeping the chamber, abortion at 36% actually outranked inflation at 29%. And so I tend to think that there's a number of uh, uh, issues and dynamics that went into ultimately the results we've seen so far in the midterms. Of course, as I've been noting, uh, some races still uh, to be decided. Uh, But I'm generally curious uh, uh, your sort of top line thoughts about how the midterms have been playing out up until this point, Dr. Desai, and uh, what do you think it could mean for the trajectory of the U.S. in the, the coming period? Well, I guess my my sort of headline reaction is that, of course, a lot of people are heaving a big sigh of relief, saying that there has not been a red wave, perhaps only a red ripple. And uh, that may very well be true, but I think that there is also, one also has to consider the fact that um, in this red ripple, once again, as far as I can tell from the Open Secrets website, um, the Democrats have certainly outspent the Republicans. So in some ways, once again, money talks. And uh, so that's that's the first thing. The second thing I'd like to say is that um, um, the the, the um, uh, so so uh, yes, and 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 the second thing I'd like to say is that the unpopularity statistics that you read out were also very important. In a certain sense, it should not be surprising that Trump is unpopular. So 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 what has happened is that in uh, an election that was supposed to be like a referendum on Biden, actually Biden generally kept away from most of the election campaigning, or a lot of the candidates didn't want him around because he was also unpopular. So in a certain sense, this election shows that the, that, uh, the citizens of the United States have very poor political choices. And I believe that I read in one article in which described the mood of the country as doer. You know, they were not particularly enthusiastic. But naturally, if half of the population, uh, namely women, is threatened by a deprivation of one of their more fundamental rights, then it is not surprising that they will come out and vote in favor of the less bad alternative. And I say less bad advisedly because for all the noise that the Democrats have made about standing up for women's rights, abortion rights, etc., the fact of the matter is they had decades during which they could have averted the possibility of the repeal of Roe versus Wade, but they did nothing. So once again, they are ill-served. The Democratic Party claims to speak in the name of ordinary people, but they are very ill-served by the Democratic Party. So I personally don't feel that, uh, you know, American democracy has suddenly been redeemed, that the threats to it, which, uh, of course, President Biden in a very self, uh, self-serving self manner highlighted a great deal, that they have, you know, they have not, in fact, been averted, because the real crisis of American democracy does not stem from the fact that you have you have uh, uh, President Trump, you know, the emergence of Trumpist politics. The emergence of Trumpist politics is itself a symptom of the deeper crisis of American democracy in which no party 
serves the popular interest. Neither the Republicans nor the Democrats, they both represent one or another sort of oligarchical interest. Yeah, and I appreciate the way that uh, you frame that, and I definitely tend to agree, because we've been noting that on the show as well, about how, you know, uh, the Biden White House has been framing both the uh, uh, midterms and I would argue by extension also the uh, the next, you know, presidential election that's coming in two years as uh, fundamentally uh, one where uh, American democracy has to be rescued. Uh, from the Republicans and the Republicans alone who seek to uh, uh, destroy it. Now, I do think it's true, and we've noted this on the show as well, that uh, uh, Republicans are engaging in this assault on democratic rights. I would also argue that they're uh, also trying to uh, beat a path towards the one-person, one-vote system in general. Uh, But in truth, this is uh, uh, an issue that is emanating from the ruling class in the U.S. itself. And of course, what's left out of that conversation is the role that the Democrats themselves have played in bringing us uh, uh, to this moment. And speaking of Trump, Dr. Desai, I'm also wondering, what do you think this means both for him as an individual and the Trumpist movement, if if we can call it that? And, you know, I include the, the Republican Party uh, uh, within that because, you know, people try to make this distinction between sort of the mainstream Republicans and the Trumpists. But I would argue that the Trumpists are the mainstream at this point in the party. And interestingly, I was uh, uh, looking at some comments that Trump gave to uh, uh, Fox News when he was um, (laughs) talking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, won his race for reelection, I think unsurprisingly, in Florida, uh, my home state, and basically warned uh, DeSantis against uh, running. He told Fox News, quote, I don't know if he is running, referring to DeSantis. I think if he runs, he could hurt himself very badly. I really believe he could hurt himself very badly. I don't think it would be good for the party. And so, you know, the rumors are swirling that Trump may officially uh, declare uh, uh, his his intent to run for uh, uh, president on the Republican ticket in 2024 sometime uh, in the coming days. Of course, that has not been confirmed, uh, although Trump has, you know, been sort of teasing it uh, uh, for a while. But just, you know, curious what you think this means sort of for that wing of politics, particularly as we see that uh, the unpopularity of uh, the Republican platform, I think, has been shown uh, somewhat in the results of this uh, uh Uh, of these midterms, doctor. But even still, I don't think that this uh, far right uh, uh, assault uh, will be slowing anytime real soon. No, exactly. You've got it right. Because the fact of the matter is that the pressures towards Trumpist politics are structural. They are not generated by individuals. If Trump disappears tomorrow, it doesn't mean that the kind of politics he represents, let's call them for the sake of brevity, Trumpist politics, they are not going to disappear. Rick DeSantis may emerge as the next incarnation, or who knows, somebody else will emerge. The point is that as long as you have a situation in which the Democrats have essentially become the main neoliberal party, party um, and essentially sort of stolen the clothes of you know the, the Reagan and, 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 and the early neoliberals and so on, then essentially the party of the right 
has to do something else. And that something else, in the case of both of the two, what I consider the two leading neoliberal financialized democracies, so liberal democracies, namely um, the UK and the US, in both cases what we've seen is that the old party of the right suddenly becomes the champion of the working class because that's the only way in which they can get some votes. They are not actually championing working class interests, but they are rather they are only manipulating working class sentiments in order to win elections. And after they win elections, they do very little to address the issues on the backs of which they rode to power. So, of course, when that happens, the, your own base remains quite uncertain. So the fact is that as long as the Democratic Party continues championing the interests of the big corporations, the financial houses, and so on, you are structurally creating a vacuum in which some or the other force will come in and try to win elections in the only other way possible, which it, that is to say, unless you are a socialist force. If you're not a socialist force, the only way you can win elections is by manipulating working class sentiment, working class suffering in order to win elections. And DeSantis will do something like that. But remember also that this type of force on the one hand appeals to working people, on the other hand represents a very authoritarian style of politics. So in, given all of this, the fact is that I don't see, I, I, I in fact personally feel that the possibility of this is further enhanced because a very substantial portion of the Democratic Party, including, from what I can tell the president himself, is reading these results as some kind of redemption of their politics. Apparently, President Biden has been making noises about running in 2024. Uh, if his health holds out, you know, and if his mind holds out, great. But uh, the fact of the matter is that they are clearly reading it in this way, which means that they are going to do more of the same. And if they do more of the same, then the, the space, as I say, which has been created, which some or the other force will, will fill, remains the space for right-wing populist politics. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny and maybe this is an aside, doctor, but what you're saying just sort of makes me think of the hypocrisy, you know, of the U.S., especially from the standpoint of um, uh, uh, imperialism, where, you know, we, we see, for instance, Joe Biden declaring that, you know, the fundamental contradiction in, in world politics is that between authoritarianism uh, uh, versus democracy, while, of course, you know, implying that countries like the U.S. and uh, the governments of Western Europe represent the enlightened, you know, a high civilization of democracy. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, the, the big bad uh, hordes of uh, in countries like uh, China and Russia and uh, other countries like that represent a uh, autocracy and when, when in truth you know this glosses over these trends towards you know an, an actual authoritarianism here in the United States as you're laying out Dr. Desai and uh, again sort of glossing over um, how liberals help to uh, uh, facilitate that and so it sort of shows uh, I think how uh, hypocritical you know the, the U.S. can be when it makes these pronouncements about other countries when in truth there's actually you know a political crisis right here in the U.S. That neither of the ruling parties tends to, you know, seems to have a plan to reconcile in, in any way, at least that would be a beneficial to the masses of poor working and oppressed people here. You know what I mean? 
Absolutely. And the Democratic Party has played a very key role in making this political crisis because when the Reagans and the Thatchers emerged in order to prosecute the neoliberal agenda, what these so-called parties of left or center, like the Democrats or the Labour Party, should have done is they should have opposed that agenda with their own, just as the left of right of center parties moved to the right the left of center parties should have moved to the left instead they followed the right of center parties further to the right and this is the way in which they have created this situation and the situation has led as uh, we read more and more in the literature from a complete disaffection of ordinary people from politics parties don't represent people they you know the people don't feel represented by the political forces in their country the political parties in their country or government of their country don't fulfill the, 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 the needs and desires of people, etc. So all of this only goes to show that uh, all of this has contributed rather to the crisis in politics, which is a fundamental crisis of representation. When you have a political system in which only a tiny elite is properly represented, then you are not living in a democracy. You are living in an oligarchy, which goes through the motions of demo democracy, uh, and it only does so by spending more and more money. So once again, as you will have seen uh, in various websites, people are pointing out that this midterm election has been, uh, you know, this, this election has broken more records in terms of campaign spending and so on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I was just looking at this yesterday. I believe uh, the number is somewhere around uh, sixteen point seven uh, billion dollars uh, spent uh, 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 during this uh, midterm uh, election season, and it seems like that's the case during every election season, both the uh, uh, midterms and the presidential election. I just like to add one little thing. It's certainly no defense of Trump, whose politics are as abhorrent as I can t as I can imagine. But let me just say that there was only one exception to this rule, and the, the rule being that the party that spends the most wins is that Trump won let's call it that, whatever it means, he won enough, enough electoral votes in 2020, even though Hillary Clinton outspent him. And in trying to defeat Trump in 20, sorry, that was in 2016, in trying to defeat Trump in 2020, Biden outspent Trump by a considerable margin, if I can remember correctly, by at least a third more, and outspending also what Hillary Clinton had spent defeating Trump in the previous elections by a very big margin. So that, that was one exception. I'm not, again, I'm not extolling. What I'm saying is that it shows that Trump was the outside force. And that the Democrats have won uh, in 2020 and now again, essentially with the old trick of outspending your opponents. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's also worth noting that, um, you know, Donald Trump, when he won the presidency, he, he lost the popular vote, I think, by about three million votes or so. But because of the Electoral College, this this relic of slavery, this thing that was put in place to basically maintain uh, uh, the power of the wealthy, we got uh, the Trump presidency and the, the politics of uh, the country shifted in a way that I think has only intensified up until this 
this very moment. And so it's just like in every way, sort of a bourgeois democracy and capitalist uh, uh, America, I think at so many uh, levels sort of creates the conditions that we're living through right now. And as such, I think we would do well to think seriously about how best to overturn that system and bring about a new one. But we're going to move to the first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Radhika Desai. And Dr. Desai, uh, related to our discussion about uh, the midterms in the U.S., of course, one of the most pressing issues in the U.S. right now is the economy with, uh, I mean, we've seen historic uh, uh, rate hikes from uh, the Federal Reserve. Uh, certainly, we argue here on the show that uh, overall people's material conditions have deteriorated. Uh, I think we're seeing a deepening frustration over the fact that so much money is being given to uh, war and issues like Ukraine, while so many people need so much here in this country. And you actually published a piece about the inflation issue um, at the New Left Review, where you were discussing about how, you know, Neil liberal financialization has had such a crucial role in uh, uh, both uh, U.S. domestic and uh, perhaps uh, global economic issues as well. And so I was hoping you could sort of break down, uh, Dr. Desai, you know, just what is a neoliberal uh, financialization and, and what is it, re- how does it relate to the inflation problem? And just what should we understand about how this whole process has unfolded and brought us to where we are now? Well, that's a really huge set of questions, and I think that um, it goes to the core of what ails the American economy and other economies, including the British, as I've said, the two leading neoliberal financialized economies. So what is the relationship between neoliberalism and financialization? So if you cast your mind back to the late 70s, early 80s, neoliberalism, that is to say allegedly free market, free trade policies, was supposed to revive the capitalism that had fallen into a slump in the 1970s and restore its productive dynamism. There was only one problem with this, however. Um, The rhetoric was of free markets and free trade and competition, but the fact of the matter was that we were already living in deeply monopolized economies where there was not so much competitive capitalism as monopoly capitalism. And this type of capitalism giving and neoliberalism essentially was saying that what you have to do is you have to free capitalism from the obligations that state and society had placed on it in uh, in the post-Second World War period, in the golden age, the age of uh, great state intervention and full employment policies and welfare states and so on. 
Now, if you, it may, it it may just have been possible that if you freed competitive capitalism from these burdens, maybe it would have restored capitalism's productive dynamism. But you were giving the same freedoms to a senile, doddering, old monopoly capitalism. And giving them the freedoms was not going to unleash any virtues of competition, but only further exacerbate the vices of monopoly. What are the vices of monopoly? Well, one of them we are already hearing of a lot. Many of your left-wing or left-of-center economists have been going on about how a large part of the inflation that ails Americans today is caused by price gouging on the part of uh, big corporations because they hold a monopoly position in the in their in each sector. What they can do is, whenever there is a rise in price, they don't need to compete with one another on uh, the basis of you know trying to reduce prices. But on the contrary, all all, all they do is they keep passing on price increases to um, to the consumer so they consumers are ending up having to pay big um, uh, higher prices uh, so anyway the, and, and there is actually a very recent paper published by an economist called Joseph Bevins which uh, made precisely this point according to his research and you can uh, find it on the working economics blog uh, co- the contribution of such price gouging to inflation is actually more than half that is to say more than half of the inflation is caused by such price gouging now to return to the neoliberal liberalism problem, that's only one of the vices of monopoly. But the second vice of monopoly is that because they hold a monopoly position, they don't actually have to invest, they don't have to improve, you know, reduce costs, improve efficiency or anything. So what they began to do once they were given better tax treatment, given, you know, uh, 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 regulated more lightly, etc., etc., is that they began to squirrel away their profits away from productive investment and towards financial investment. That is to say, instead of investing to produce new goods and services, they essentially became devoted to bidding up the prices of existing assets. So you're adding nothing to the economy. All you're doing is you are simply bidding up the cost of existing assets, whether it's stocks and bonds or real estate or uh, you know various other financial products or commodities. And by the way, I would say that commodity speculation adds a further, adds a, it makes an, its own independent contribution to inflation, particularly to food and fuel price inflation. And of course, the bidding up of house prices increases the contribution of housing costs, whether you are paying a mortgage or you are paying a rent, it doesn't matter, but your housing costs are also going up and contributing to inflation. Anyway, so what? So instead of restoring the productive dynamism of the economy, what neoliberalism did is it only encouraged financialization. And of course, the more profits are diverted away from productive investment in towards financialization, the weaker the economy gets because it is not getting the requisite amount of investment, of investment in productive assets, in improving productivity, etc., etc. So this has been the spiral in which our economies have been for the last four decades. And of course, with every, you know, when, when our economies entered this era, they were still relatively robust coming out of three or four decades of robust growth and so on. But of 
course, with every passing decade, these behaviors, financialization behaviors were exacerbated, and there was nothing to replace it, so the economies were getting weaker and weaker. And after the 2008 crisis, which I prefer to call the, the North Atlantic financial crisis, because it wasn't a global financial crisis, it basically affected the United States, the United Kingdom, and the Eurozone. But anyway, after the 2008 financial crisis, the debility of our economies was getting worse, but at the same time, the financialization trend was going further. I will Now, you also asked me what this has to do with inflation. In order to answer that question, we have to introduce into our conversation the role of the Federal Reserve in particular. So I will now confine my remarks to the United States. They will apply with adjustment to other countries as well. But essentially, what has been happening, particularly after the bursting of the dot-com bubble in 2000, is that the Federal Reserve has constantly act, essentially reacted to financial crisis, which, by the way, were getting increasingly frequent in the age of financialization, not by punishing the people who created the crisis, not by uh, requiring the people who inflated asset bubbles to pay for it by suffering losses, but rather by bailing them out every time. Alan Greenspan started this practice when he bailed out investors by giving them essentially free money. It's called injections of liquidity, but it's essentially free money to the investors who lost money back in the 1987 financial crisis. And thereafter, this practice has continued through the dot-com bubble and the housing and credit bubbles. And... Everyone thought after the housing and credit bubble burst in 2008 that somehow uh, the, uh, these, these, these actions would be corrected. But no, on the contrary, <coughs> the Federal Reserve not only continued these practices, but uh, started evolving new ways of, engage, of injecting liquidity. So in addition to low interest rates, we now have uh, not just low interest rates, but zero interest rate policy. In addition, we have uh, quantitative easing, which is essentially the Federal Reserve buying up illiquid assets from financial institutions, assets that cannot easily be sold or not sold at a good price, buying them up at good prices and giving banks good cash in return. And all of these practices only served to inflate further bubbles. So today, or <coughs> over the last a decade or more, a dozen odd years, we have inflated, the Federal Reserve has inflated the so-called everything bubble. So now there is essentially the inflation of every asset, the price of every asset that you can imagine. So, and then, of course, the pandemic came along and the Federal Reserve injected massive quantities of further liquidity. So, you know, one indicator of this is that before 2008, the Federal Reserve's own balance sheet, which is essentially the assets that it holds, on its books, it was around one trillion. Then, with after two thousand and eight, it went up to two trillion. Then, during the period since, it uh, as the Federal Reserve engaged in quantitative easing, it went up to around four trillion. And then, 
uh, between 2020 uh, and today, it has gone up to uh, like over eight trillion. Essentially, it has doubled again. So this is an enormous quantity of assets that the Federal Reserve is holding, and it has encouraged these bubbles. Now, what does this have to do with inflation? So here's the thing. Everybody is pointing out, and I'm not against it, you know, people have pointed out that the, the Federal Reserve is using the sledgehammer of high interest rates to combat inflation, but in the process, it's going to, to cripple the economy. I agree with them. Higher infra interest rates will do that. And, 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 and so, uh, I, uh, you know, one should make an argument about not raising interest rates. But... There is an accompanying argument, which, if not made, is actually going to land us, by which I mean ordinary working people, into deeper doo-doo. What's that? It's the following. That in addition to demanding that the Federal Reserve not raise interest rates, you should demand that the Federal Reserve dismantle the structures of financialization. Um, and, and, and essentially transform our financial and banking system from a system that um, is geared towards inflating the value of existing assets into a system which does what it says in your textbook when you read about the banking system, which is essentially finance productive activity. Our banking systems have long since stopped doing that. And there needs to be a fundamental reorientation, but nobody talks about that. So since nobody talks about that, what's actually going to happen is that, quite frankly, asking the Federal Reserve not to raise interest rates is kind of superficial. Because you know what? The Federal Reserve is not going to raise interest rates very much. It's going to pretty well stop doing that because... You see, when Paul, you know, people talk about Paul Volcker, Paul Volcker dealt with inflation in the late 70s, early 80s by allowing interest rates to rise as high as they would like, so long as they went above the rate of inflation and made interest rates positive again. Um, this, so the people say that's what will happen, you know, and in Paul Volcker's age, uh, some of the, our listeners may be too young to remember, but we had double-digit interest rates. At one point, they even hit 20%. So that, this is a scenario they are fearing, but quite frankly, there is no reason to fear this scenario, because well before we get there, the Federal Reserve will stop raising rates. Why? Because raising rates will prick all the asset bubbles on which the wealth of the elite whose interest the Federal Reserve serves, they, they will prick the bubble on which the elite's wealth rests. This is the issue. So my wager is that the Federal Reserve will not raise interest rates very high. It can't, not unless it actually suddenly becomes a different creature than it is, a creature that is no longer habituated to serving the interests of the wealthy and suddenly becomes, uh, becomes converted to serving the interests of the ordinary Joe and Jane who need proper productive investment. This is not happening. I don't see that happening right now. So if it happens, I'll, I'll be the first to applaud, but I don't see it happening. So it's essentially the Federal Reserve won't raise interest rates. It will continue to support the assets of the wealthy while the rest of us continue to suffer from inflation. I mean, there, there's a lot more I could add, but maybe I will stop there for now. 
Well, yeah, and that was kind of going to be my next uh, uh, question because, as you point out, I think correctly about how all of this um, is designed for the benefit of the already wealthy. So what then are the consequences for uh, uh, the rest of us? Well, uh, uh, uncorrect, this pattern of behavior has already created levels of inequality which have surpassed any levels known in the history of humankind. Like, you know, we we who live, who think that, you know, those of us who think that capitalism is better than feudalism should think again because we are no longer better than feudalism. We left that uh, station behind a long time ago. We are now far worse. So essentially, this is the inequality. Inequality then creates further problems. Obviously, with inequality, a lot of us have fallen into poverty. With inequality, uh, the less demand that, that you see when you give money to those who already have lots of money they are not going to spend it they are going to hold it in the form of some or the other kind of financial investment which will only further exacerbate inequality so the problem is when you have inequality demand conditions deteriorate and even if you're or if a small business person say wanted to make an investment they'd be daft to do so because the demand conditions are not good they are going to lose money. So they will not be prompted to make investments. So it just simply spirals into a, uh, uh, it, it keeps keeps Western economies, it keeps the U.S. economy in a spiral of decline, as far as most of us are concerned. The only people who have benefited from the, what the Federal Reserve has done over the last many uh, decades are the, a small elite, an ever-shrinking elite of financial interests. So that's where that leaves us. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm also wondering, you know, because we've been talking a lot um, about the U.S., understandably so. But um, I'm also wondering, you know, what 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 impact do these dynamics have on, say, you know, uh, uh, the global south, you know, which is still very much under the, you know, uh, uh, boot, if you will, uh, the hegemony of the, the U.S. dollar and, of course, are the issues like war and, the, you know, the same rate hikes that we've been talking about. I mean, how how do these dynamics impact uh, that part of the world? Well, uh, I mean, that's a very interesting question. So throughout the last decade or so, what we have seen is that because, you know, one of the things that is also not uh, sufficiently appreciated it is part of the reason why the rich need so much cheap credit to make money is that they enga- they must engage in so-called leverage trading. They must engage in leverage trading in the sense that they must borrow money in order to speculate in asset markets because the margins are so thin that unless you put in very large num- large amounts of money, you will not make a decent you will not make decent money. So then you borrow that money. So that's what low interest rates have done. Low interest rates have been justified in the name of encouraging productive investment, but you are not going to do that unless you reduce the monopoly structure of the economy, you you uh, create better demand conditions, none of which has been done. And it requires a lot of government intervention to do that. So in the situation where already those who are wealthy are essentially, they, they are having to take ever greater risks and borrow ever more money in order to make money, what happens to them is that they then see 
foreign markets as good places to make money out of. So they have become habituated to lending to third world governments in the form of bonds and securities. And so such lending has has been taking place. And in many ways, uh, third world countries have, many third world countries have borrowed in foreign currency in order to, you know, do various things. In some cases, engage in developmental activity. But for example, in the rather tragic case of Sri Lanka, what happened is that the governments irresponsibly borrowed money merely in order to finance welfare, consumption, etc., etc. And when this happens, and then if for some reason money flows out of your economy, and that can has that has to do with the whims of investors, then you will have a currency crisis. The debt that you owe because of the currency crisis, the payments that you owe will go up, and you will essentially have a debt crisis. Now, the interesting thing is that yes, the IMF has been warning about such debt crisis, but if you look at what has been happening to exchange rates. It's not that all third world countries are suffering from uh, an exchange rate crisis or suffering from depressed exchange rates. I mean, and or not all other currencies. Certainly other first world currencies are suffering. The yen has suffered, the pound has suffered, the euro has suffered, etc. Thanks to the recent not very great increases in interest rates in the United States. But many other currencies in third world countries are find the ruble, of course, has stabilized. It's amazing. So what's really happening in exchange markets remains a little bit more mysterious, but not all third world currencies are being attacked. What the IMF is doing, in my humble opinion, by raising this um, uh, raising the you know the, the sort of slogan of oh there will be a big debt crisis etc is it is making it easier for the Federal Reserve to make excuses for not raising interest rates. Like I said, the Federal Reserve will not raise interest rates because doing so will harm the very rich people it is trying to protect and whose wealth it is trying to preserve. But it can never justify it by saying oh if we raise interest rates we will have you know, uh, uh, Warren Buffett's or Jeff Bezos's wealth will collapse. No, it can never say that. It will always say, oh, we are doing this in order to create better investment conditions for an, an employ- and, and increase employment levels. Or they will say we are not increasing interest rates in order to reduce the burden on third world countries. So the IMF is simply preparing a ramp for the Federal Reserve or one more ramp for the Federal Reserve to climb down from its uh, interest rate raising um, uh, rhetoric. Because remember, the rhetoric has been very strong. You know, early on, uh, Jerome Powell, uh, originally, you know, in the uh, 2021, in early 2021, he uh, took the position that, oh, you know, um, this inflation is going to be transitory. I don't have to do anything about it because he did not want to raise interest rates. But then the inflation proved persistent. Then he had to start at least increasing interest rates and increase them a little bit at least. So he, we've gone from like more or less 0% to wherever we are right now, about three, less than 4% or something. And maybe he will take it up to 5%. But that's where you get into the danger zone. Because if you think about it, what pricked the 2008 what, what pricked the bubble in 2008? What pricked it is that the Federal Reserve was forced to raise interest rates uh, 
and uh, in, in 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 order to counteract downward pressure on the dollar, the dollar was already declining, and it, there were now new pressures on it. So throughout the 2000s, the value of the dollar was declining, and then there were new pressures on it. So then the Federal Reserve had to act, and it started raising interest rates, and they only had to reach about 5.25 percent before they pricked the bubble. This is a far cry from Paul Wool and, and, and the prick all those asset bubbles, the house of cards, the financial house of cards. This is a far cry from the 20% that Paul Volcker could do because he didn't have to worry about these piles of financial assets, these, these very, very fragile house of cards on which the wealth of the wealthy was built. You see, because the wealth of the wealthy is no longer built on mills and factories and mines and so on. It is built on asset bubbles. And when you have that, you prick the bubble, it will all collapse. And then they, there will be, you know, well, they, he will have to answer for that. So the point I'm trying to make is that... So the IMF is simply making it easier. And of course, the other thing that everybody does is it talks up the dollar system. The fact of the matter is that I have argued and have argued both in my book, Geopolitical Economy, and in a more recent paper I did with Michael Hudson on, which was called Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy, in which we argued that the dollar system has always rested on extremely fragile, volatile foundations. So in in order to keep the dollar as the world's money, the United States has to – essentially, the Federal Reserve has engaged in inflating a series of asset bubbles. What is the function of the asset bubbles? It is to attract money from abroad into dollar-denominated assets so that other countries continue to purchase dollars and to – keep up the value of the dollar, because the more demand there is for dollars, then the dollar's value remains high, okay? So, um, and, and after, you know, and each of these financial bubbles has burst very destructively for ordinary people and then has been replaced by another bubble. So the dollar's world role rests on this very contradictory, problematic, in fact, destructive system. So the world long needed a way out of it. On top of that, what has happened over the last uh, uh, decade and a half, uh, well, since 2008, with quantitative easing, is that all these asset markets have been supported by the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing program. That is to say, they would these asset markets would be far lower if the Federal Reserve were not creating artificial demand for them, essentially by printing money. So we already have a situation in which these asset markets aren't what they used to be. Foreign money isn't coming into the U.S. system in the same way as it did before 2008. On top of that, now the United States is weaponizing the dollar system. It has weaponized it against uh, Iran and Venezuela and Argentina and what have you, and now it is weaponizing it against Russia. Um, and the rest of the world is watching. If you can, if you can suddenly steal the money of a, a nuclear-armed power, which is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, who will be next? So 
people or, or countries that have whose policymakers have a few gray cells to rub together, they will be taking notes. They will be increasingly diverting, and they are already doing that. More and more countries are making agreements to have uh, to, to 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 create separate payment systems. They are making agreements to trade with each other in their own currencies and not in the dollar and so on. And also they are increasingly, they have access to international finance in the form of institutions like China's various banks or the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and so on, which is actually investing in production rather than simply asking countries to lift capital controls in order that American financial interests will come in for a short while, speculate in your assets, make no productive investment, and then leave causing a financial crisis in your country. People have seen this for the last several decades, and they realize now what the story is, and they are not necessarily going to take it very long. So I would say that the dollar's days are numbered because both it is internally decaying as a system and because the rest of the world is increasingly fashioning alternatives to it. Definitely. And, you know, uh, switching gears, uh, but I, I think still related, uh, Dr. Desai, is I wanted to bring up the issue of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, particularly as it seems that a Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is uh, basically trying to set the uh, conditions or the stipulations for uh, negotiations with Russia, uh, uh, saying in some uh, uh, recent comments that, uh, you know, uh, any sort of peace negotiation efforts should focus on, quote, stopping Russian aggression, restoring our territorial integrity and forcing Russia into genuine peace talks. Now, uh, you know, there are rumblings that Zelensky is only sort of taking this stance at the urging of his uh, uh, Western backers. I don't know how terribly um, likely it is that, uh, uh, you know, the Russian government will want to enter into talks on precisely those uh, uh, stipulations. But I mean, even still, I mean, from, uh, you know, my perspective, certainly what we need in this moment are uh, negotiations and not escalations to, to bring this uh, war to uh, an end, not only to stop the suffering of the Ukrainian and, and Russian peoples, but to also remove the potential of a nuclear warfare, something that could devastate humanity and life on this planet as we know it. But just wondering, how do you sort of see things uh, with the Ukraine war uh, at this point? Uh, I mean, you know, the thing is, right from the get-go, the what we have seen in the Western mainstream press is a is a narrative about what's going on in Ukraine, which is completely divorced from what's happening on the ground. So this, uh, and and of course, Zelensky uh, is really he's. I sometimes wonder whether he's a person or he's primarily a personer. That is to say, a a a a, a uh, you know, like a like a very famous actor. We maybe. Marilyn Monroe may be a person, but Marilyn Monroe was also a person now. That is to say she had a certain image. I think Zelensky is more a persona than a person. And that persona, his, its function is to essentially uh, 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 goad the West into, into further war, etc., etc., and pretend as though Ukraine is winning. Fact of the matter is that Ukraine is at the scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of its own ability to fight, in terms of the ability of the West to support it. The West no longer has the arms and no longer has the industrial capacity to continue supplying arms to Ukraine. So 
given all of this, things are coming to a head. There is no doubt that Western countries, they, although they would, they they don't want to appear as though they are losing. They want to make it appear as though you know Ukraine has fought a great war. We will, you know, they want to fight in Ukraine till the last Ukrainian, etc. But they want to bring Russia to the negotiating table because they have no choice. But they want to make it look as though the Russians have no choice. So go figure. You will see all these shenanigans. But I would not be surprised if in the coming weeks and maybe months or two there will be some negotiations. I hope, like you, that there will be. But honestly, I don't think they will be on terms Ukraine sets. Uh, uh, the only thing that will happen is they will be on on Russia's terms, but the West, Western media will 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 be bending over backwards to create the impression that that is not so, and in fact, the opposite is the case. Yeah, and you know, without a doubt, uh, the U.S. corporate press has just been in incredibly uh, uh, hawkish uh, throughout the the Ukraine war. Not that you know they're any less hawkish during other conflicts, but I mean, I would argue that in certain uh, uh, cases, there were even you know the sort of the collective uh, mainstream media was more hawkish than even uh, uh, the White House uh, as it pertains to this. And so, in a way, it feels like. Here lately, doctor, there's been some kind of shift that that may be uh, impending as it pertains to this conflict one way or the other. I mean, of course, we know that it's um, far easier to go up the ladder of escalation than to go down. And while, you know, we don't necessarily know where things will lead, like we've been saying, hopefully at least the peace, it uh, it uh, uh, does just sort of feel like there's just been kind of a, a change in the air, if you will, as it regards sort of a mainstream sentiment um, around this conflict. Now, I don't know if you uh, agree with that, but I'm just wondering, you know, why do you think that is? Do you think there was a change in calculus in the halls of Washington, a Kiev or, or Moscow? I mean, it, it just feels like uh, 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 the folks, you know, who are sort of in charge here, if you will, uh, 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 in terms of each party, I think sort of recognize that something uh, is happening as regards to this war that needs to be changed. And we may uh, be moving towards a moment where that happens. But uh, how do you see it? Exactly. No, I, I do think there is a change of mood. But as I say, I think the change of mood is not because they are suddenly filled with the you know milk of human kindness or that Ukraine is winning or anything. The change of mood is fun. I mean, we will we don't know for sure. Sure, but the way I read it, and we will only find out in coming months and years after the conflict is resolved, which I hope it will be, and when people sort of expose the, the truth. But basically, I think it's coming out of the fact, my surmise is that it's coming out of the fact that the West's capacity to fight is exhausted, both in terms of the supply of military weapons, in terms of supply of Ukrainian troops, in terms of European public Tolerance. You see more and more, you are seeing in more and more countries in Europe that people are not going to be able to withstand the rigors of the energy crisis and the food crisis and so on. So, And the political systems are being destabilized massively. Uh, also, economic systems. You know, the United States has gotten away so far with these casino-type dollar system, etc., which I was describing earlier, but its hour has certainly struck for Britain. We haven't even discussed Britain, which perhaps we should have, but in Britain, basically, the time has come when financial markets are no longer willing to essentially uh, 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 
put money into the, into sterling to the extent necessary in order to cover the UK's persistent trade deficits. So when this happens, the UK is without support. The UK is going to have to do something very drastic. So for all of these reasons, I think the time is coming when the conflict will have to be wound down. The West cannot fight this fight, even in the proxy manner in which it has been fighting it. So I think it will have to be wound down. I hope it does. I don't care at one level if they, you know, crow about actually winning the war and bringing President Putin, because the truth will out eventually. But whatever brings us to a swift... Uh, 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 swift, uh, uh, pr- pr- you know, progress towards negotiation. I'm all for it, and I think that, the, uh, except the only fact is that I don't give the West any credit for doing it out of any good sense. They are doing it because they could not achieve what they wanted. Remember, what they wanted to achieve was to bring Putin's regime down by ratcheting up military pressure on Russia. They have signally failed to do that, and so now they're going to have to negotiate. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we should always remember about how, you know, at one point, uh, U.S. officials were actually being honest about how the um, goal of their involvement in the war in Ukraine is to weaken Russia. Right. And to actually sort of, you know, and weaken in the sense of uh, uh, making Russia a country more susceptible to the whims of the United States, which is precisely what the U.S. has wanted ever since the fall of the Soviet Union. And and even though uh, the Russian Federation, as we know it today, reconstituted itself as a capitalist nation, um, that still has not happened, nor does it seem uh, to be likely to happen any time real soon. Uh, The Russian people and even Vladimir Putin as an individual are very aware of the history of their country and what led to uh, the looting and suffering uh, that took place there. And simply don't intend to go back to that station. And so I I just always think it's important to remember how a lot of this history is bound up in uh, all of this. And beyond that, when we talk about the anti-imperialist movements and the real peace movements, both in the U.S. and uh, around the world. I think now is a time where we really uh, uh, have to get in gear, Uh, particularly now, I think, as it seems that negotiations very well may at least be being considered or at least being on the table in some kind of way. Understanding the serious danger of the continued escalation of the Ukraine war, as we've been discussing today, uh, uh, it's clear that uh, uh, pushing for real peace and pushing for negotiations Negotiated into the war is in the interest of not only all parties involved, but for humanity and life on Earth as we know it. And we can't be swayed by uh, uh, these elements, you know, uh, drunk off the wine of uh, incessant imperialist uh, propaganda that want to make us think that there's something wrong with uh, uh, pushing for peace or trying to stigmatize the actual end of war, which sounds insane. But we have to be able to stand on principle and be steadfast and be strong in our convictions, understanding the correctness of our position. And in that way, I think we can contribute greatly to a peace process. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Radica decides so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. As always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.